Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Look at various verses from there, which are, uh, are also printed in the bulletin for you. <clears throat> John chapter 1. So, uh, we're, we've been in a series on worship, looking at why we do the things we do on Sunday mornings. Um, and we're entering into now a final kind of section. It's like a subsection um, on worship. And we're going to spend this week and the following two talking about uh, what is known as the, the means of grace. The means of grace. Um, the means of grace are the, the word, which we'll look at this morning, and the sacraments of uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at over the next two weeks. Uh, the means of grace, it's called, those, it's called that because um, they're those, those things through which God communicates his saving grace to us, right? Um, to use, uh, uh, he communicates to us for our faith, basically. His, his grace needs to be communicated in a special saving way if we're going to have that relationship with him, if we're going to have faith and trust in him. And the, the ordinary means through which he does that uh, are the word and sacraments, the ordinary means through which he assures us of his love for us. Uh, are the, the word and the sacraments. In the Reformed tradition, actually, the, uh, which our church is part of, the Reformed tradition, as distinct from others like uh, Lutherans or Anglicans or other types of Protestants, but um, the formal list of the means of grace also includes prayer. And then there are um, a lot of other things maybe that, that people generally tend to see um, communicating God's grace to us like fellowship, right? And uh, the spiritual disciplines, um, they are also instruments that God uses commonly to build our faith. Um, but I actually tend to agree maybe with the Lutherans uh, on this point. I think that's okay um, to agree with the Lutherans over against our own tradition sometimes. <laughs> um, that ultimately and especially, ultimately and especially, God has given us the word and the sacraments uh, and that these other things, like prayer or fellowship, are built on the Word and the sacraments. Um, for example, prayer only builds our faith. We only truly connect with God in prayer if our prayer is based on God's Word. Right? Um, and so, with the other aspects of the Christian life that God regularly uses to build our faith, at the root of all the things that God might use to save us and to sanctify us, to grow us in our relationship with Him, um, at the root of all those things stand the Word and Sacraments. And in fact, uh, the Word and the Sacraments, along with uh, church discipline, which we won't get into this morning, have um, historically been understood as the marks of the church. If you've got these things, then you've got the church. And if you don't have these things, then you don't have a true church because the church is shaped, uh, it's, it's formed, and it's sustained by these things. So... Um, we have a, a very difficult time being persuaded of God's love for us. We have a very difficult time being persuaded of God's love for us. So if that's going to happen, if we're going to be persuaded of his love, if we're going to come to faith, and if we're going to grow in our faith, then God is going to have to tell us again and again, keep telling us uh, about the good news, about his love and grace and mercy. And as he does so, then our hearts 
and our minds are renewed for worship. And we're caught up into the very communion of the Trinity, which we've looked at over and over again this uh, series as it's the essence of worship, is being in communion with God. Um, so the means of grace, the word and the sacraments, these actually are the chief elements, um, the feature presentations, if you will, <laughs> of, of our worship. Uh, they define our worship in overarching ways, and you can see that that's um, kind of visualized in our bulletins with the two major categories uh, of the Word, which takes us through a good half or more of the service, and then the upper room, which is where we uh, celebrate um, baptism if that happens, and then uh, the Lord's Supper. So uh, the Word and sacraments are the chief elements of our worship, and so this morning, we're going to look at the Word of God. So um, let me pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray for you to um, be at work in us through your Spirit, that your Spirit would use the Word of Christ as a means of grace, that you would regenerate our dead hearts, if need be, and that you would uh, refashion us more and more after the likeness of your own Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, um, this is some of the richest and deepest writing in all of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, almost every single word, and even the, the order of every single word, um, has profound significance, and, and, and they all engage in themes that are found throughout the Scriptures, and uh, particularly throughout John's gospel, um, and it would be impossible 
to exhaust all of the scriptural connections to explain every part of this text, regardless of how much time we have. It's, it's impossible. Um, so we're just going to look at a very few points, uh, three points. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus, the Word of God, is God. And we're going to look, second, what Jesus, being the Word of God, reveals about God. And then third, uh, what this means for our worship. So the fact that Jesus, the Word of God, is God, um, what the Word of God reveals about God, and then what this means for our worship. So Jesus, uh, the Word of God, He is God. John's language is, um, uh, in this passage, simple. Um, it's actually probably some of the simplest Greek to pick up for you know kind of beginner Greek New Testament students. Um, but it's profound, right? Uh, it's profound and simple. Uh, and it's clear that what he's saying about Jesus, that he is God. It's very clear from the text. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So anyone who's ever opened a Bible and started at the beginning uh, will recognize strong similarities here to Genesis chapter 1, which we read uh, in the Old Testament reading this morning. And if you ask me, I think uh, because of this, actually John's gospel should start off the New Testament as a strong parallel uh, to the beginning of the Old Testament, but um, that's okay. I'm not in charge of determining the order of the canon, so, um, <clears throat> but maybe you understand. Uh, John is referring to Jesus as the Word, right? It's clear he's talking about Jesus. He is the Word. And we'll talk about um, what that means a little more in just a minute, but we know he's not just talking about some um, philosophical abstraction, the logos, right? This, um, which is the Greek word for word uh, that's used here. Uh, he's not just talking about a philosophical abstraction. He uses strongly personal language. He was in the beginning with God. And, um, and the preposition that is translated with here, he was with God. He was in the beginning with God is um, not the normal word for with, and it only means with when it's talking about one person being with another person. Uh, for the most part, I think there's maybe two exceptions in the New Testament where it's used otherwise, but it's, um, it's personal language, right? Uh, all of that to say that John is talking about the fact that Jesus, the Word of God, he was... In the beginning, and not only was he with God, then he was God. Right? Uh, it's describing not only the eternal pre-existence of the Word, the Son of God, before he came into the world and was born of the Virgin Mary and became a man. Right? It's talking about the eternal pre-existence of the Son of God, that he existed uh, before the world began even, but um, it's also talking about his divinity, that he was not created but he's the creator. Right. Um, various heretics and cults, uh, including some people that may have come and knocked at your door at some point, um, but throughout Christian history have taught that Jesus is not fully divine, right? but that he was created by God. Maybe he was the first of all creatures and therefore the highest and best and most supreme and glorious, etc., um, but that he was created by God nonetheless. And Arius um, is 
the name of the, uh, the major proponent of this view who lived in the early 300s. Um, and Athanasius was the good guy. He was the bishop of Alexandria and was uh, Arius' chief opponent, right? Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he has not always existed, that he is not divine, uh, that he is not God. <clears throat> but Athanasius argued for the full divinity of Jesus, and actually this week, uh, this, this past week, um, uh, marks uh, some anniversary of uh, whatever 2013 minus 325 is, somebody work that out, uh, in, in the year 325, uh, the church met for the Council of Nicaea, where they sided with Athanasius against Arius. They produced the Nicene Creed, which we've used uh, in our worship as the, the confession of our faith. We're going to use it this morning. <clears throat> and, uh, and so the church has always believed, the, church, the, the Orthodox faith has always taught that, um, that the scriptures teach that Jesus is fully divine. There have been battles fought over this and statements made. Jesus is fully divine. That's what we believe. Uh, it says in um, verse 1, the word was God. And the structure is emphatic. The word was God. Uh, and it says in verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Right? So he couldn't be a created being. Because all created beings, without exception, were made through him, through the word of God. Right. Um, and John goes on to say in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, literally pitched his tent, tabernacled among us, um, which is not to say that the word used to be God and ceased to be God uh, truly and fully when he became a man, when he became uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, because John the Baptist's testimony later in verse 34 is that he is the Son of God. Right? When he sees him at his baptism, he is the Son of God. And I included the Baptist's testimony in the scripture uh, reading through the text this morning because it's crucial to understanding of the fact that Jesus is God, that we know how that jives with our understanding of who God is. Right? Um, how, for example, can Jesus be God and yet pray to God who is in heaven? How can Jesus be God and, um, and be baptized by God the Holy Spirit? We need the Baptist's testimony, which presents God as clearly triune, right? Uh, one God in three persons. It says in verses 32 34, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Christ, the Son of God. I myself did not know him. I didn't, uh, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize the Father said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so I testify, he is the Son of God. Right? So you've got the three persons of the Trinity mentioned here. And John is saying that he previously didn't know Jesus. He, of course he knew him, he was his cousin, right? Um, but he said he, he didn't know, he didn't understand who Jesus truly was until God the Father told him that God the Son 
would be identified by God the Spirit resting on him. Right? Um, so God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons equal in power and glory, one God from eternity and forever. Um, and the Word, Jesus, is the second person of this trinity. He's the Son of God who, who took human nature to himself, added, didn't lose any of his divinity, added flesh, human nature, to himself when he became also a man, so that now he has, this is very theological stuff, two distinct natures in one person, and he remains that way forever. It's crazy, right? It's deep stuff. It is not trivial, right? The most important truth we could possibly confess is who God is and the fact that Jesus Christ is both God and man uh, forever because of what it says about God, because of what it says about our relationship with God, which leads into the second point then, what Jesus, the word of God, reveals about God, what that says about God. So um, now we'll think a little bit about what it means that Jesus is the word, that that's the the designation used of him throughout this passage. He is the word of God. Um, it says, in him was life, in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this, again, is, uh, it calls to our memory uh, Genesis chapter 1, which I'll, I'll read again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering um, like a bird, uh, maybe like a dove or something, hovering or brooding right, um, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke a word. So God's powerful word dispels the darkness in this passage. It did so at creation, and it does so in our salvation as well. Uh, biblical writers regularly refer to the darkness of our minds, that because of our sin, we cannot comprehend spiritual truth, we cannot reason our way to a right understanding with God, uh, in order to have a relationship with him as he truly is. Um, if we're going to know God's truth for our salvation, then um, the darkness has to be dispelled from our minds. He has to specially reveal it to us, this truth about himself and our salvation, like shining a light into the darkness. If God was going to save us, which he did not have to do, if God was going to save us, then he would have to disclose himself to us and speak to us. And so, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
So when the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who's at the Father's side, became a human, the incarnation, that's that technical word for the Son of God becoming a man, the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, he revealed God to us for our relationship with him. He, the, the language is, when it says he made him known, he exegeted him to us. He says uh, later, Jesus says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So he is the word of God. He's the message, the communique, the, the narrative of God for us and for our salvation. In the fundamental relationality of the triune God, one person of the three is communication. He is the truth. He is the the revelation of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we have the the written word of God. We've got the, the word of God preached. But in these last days, ultimately, the best disclosure of God, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God is the kind of God who speaks. He's the kind of God who discloses himself to people like us. And his word is living and powerful and life-giving effective, right? God is the kind of God who speaks and a world springs into existence. And he's the kind of God who then enters into that world, into his own creation, by taking a created human nature to himself forever. God is the kind of God who, when he was walking around on the earth, fixes broken people. God is the kind of God who frees people from demonic bondage. God is the kind of God who teaches people about his mercy, who proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. God is the kind of God who forgives sin by drinking the cup of wrath. God is the kind of God who brings rebellious people into his family, loving them, accepting them, never abandoning them, sharing his inheritance with them forever. We know this is exactly what God is like because this is exactly what Jesus is like. And Jesus is the word of God. He's the full and perfect self-disclosure of God to us. And if that weren't amazing enough in itself, in Jesus coming to us, grace and truth came to us. The grace and truth of God. Jesus, it says, is full of grace and truth, which means that God is full of grace and truth. Jesus doesn't misrepresent God. He does not obscure our vision of God. 
He doesn't mislead us about what his father is like. He is the clear radiance, the exact representation of the glory of God. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, and that glory is good news, full of grace and truth. God is for us. He is not against us, as is clearly seen in his self-revelation in his divine word. God knows you. Jesus knows you inside and out. How many times does the gospel say that he knew what was in the heart of people like us, that he knew what people were thinking? And Jesus came not to destroy us, not even to make impossible demands of us, not to condemn us by a truth that crushes us. Jesus came in grace and truth. Paul Tripp said, uh, grace reveals your sins, weaknesses, and failures, which is a function of the truth, right? But grace never turns and uses what has been exposed against you. Jesus came to freely give himself to us and for us on our behalf to remove God's righteous anger over sin by dying on the cross in our place, to grant us his own eternal life and inheritance, even to share his glory with us. It says in John 17, Jesus was anointed. He was baptized with the Holy Spirit. The full favor and love of God rested on him as God's only begotten son. And then Jesus turns right around and anoints us. He baptizes us with the very same Holy Spirit as sons and daughters of God. He draws us into communion with God. So God is the kind of God who does all that. And you can believe that because of Jesus, because God makes himself perfectly known through the word Jesus. So, last, what does this mean for our worship? Um, How does all that make your heart feel? How does that change the way that you think about your relationship with God? Which should be the most significant thing in your life. How does this transform everything in your life, all your relationships, your hope, the way that you face death? God's self-disclosure through Jesus Christ changes everything. His grace comes to us through his word, and it turns our lives upside down for good. So we're to let the word of Christ, especially the message of the gospel, dwell among us richly. As it says in Colossians 3, the word revives us. We're born again to a living hope that will not perish through the word of God. The word attracts us. It renews us and transforms us. It lifts us up and it compels us. The word gives reason for everything that we do in worship. It shapes everything we do. It motivates everything that we do. It fills everything that we do in worship. So we have readings, and we have sermons, and we have confessions of faith based on the truth of God's word, and we have benedictions and so on, right? The whole service is shaped and filled by God's word 
every single element of worship is born of the word. It contains the word. It delivers the word. It's word-oriented. And if it's truly word-oriented, it will be Christ-oriented because Jesus Christ is the true word. So the word's main thrust in our service is to communicate Christ, to communicate the grace and truth that are found in Jesus Christ. It's to be a means of grace. So the sermons are Christ-centered. If Christ is not held forth in the sermon, then it's not a Christian sermon. I'll give you permission to call me on that. Jesus himself taught his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24 that all the scriptures teach about him. In John 6, Jesus preached a sermon on an Old Testament text with himself as the fulfillment. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says that the sacred writings, the scriptures, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So in order to make sure that the scriptures are rightly proclaimed in our worship, uh, those who organize the liturgy and those who preach are thoroughly examined. Our presbytery, the group of uh, churches, the group of elders in our region, our presbytery guards the pulpits where God's word is proclaimed by requiring seminary training, uh, learning in the original languages of the text, uh, learning in Bible and theology, requires that of candidates for ordination, examines candidates in their knowledge of these things, particularly with regard to the Bible and theology, and, uh, and our presbytery examines them by hearing them deliver sermons. And this is critical because, as uh, John Frame puts it um, in his book, uh, Worship in Spirit and Truth, the second Helvetic Confession states that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And this statement should not be used by preachers to argue for their own infallibility. Rather, what it means is that insofar as the preacher rightly proclaims the word, his words are God's. So, um, Brian Chappell makes an excellent point about this, saying that uh, the goal of preaching, the goal of delivering the word of God in a sermon, is not just instruction. It's not just a matter of... um, making people more biblically literate. Because who of you can even remember what I talked about last week? Uh, How is this helping your your Bible memory? Um, He says, Brian Chappell says in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, the efficacy of our preaching should not primarily be judged by what persons remember, but by how they live in the wake of our messages. Um, Because the gospel changes us from inside out. And that should shape the way that you listen to the word. I'm not supposed to say, listen to me because I preach the word of God. I wouldn't put it that way. I'd say, listen to the word of God. You've got to be prepared to listen to the word of God as you expect it to be the word of God, the word of Christ, the very self-disclosure of God to you for your relationship to him. The means of grace. Listen. Right? Uh, the New City Catechism says, 
the Word of God is to be read and heard with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. So, um, so we give ourselves to the Word of God, and after it's read, we give thanks to God, we give praise to Christ for the gospel, we pray for God's help to grant us faith in rightly responding to the Word of God, we lift up our hearts to receive God's blessing given to us through His Word. Right? And the Word of God is a blessing to us. God has not left us in the darkness, but has shined the light of the gospel into the world for our good, disclosing Himself as the God of grace and truth through His Son, who is the Word of God. Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we worship you. Jesus, the Word of God, we worship you. Holy Spirit, the breath of God who inspired the writers of the Scriptures, we worship you. Because you have given us your Word, you have disclosed yourself to us. You have not left us alone, but you've given us every reason for hope and joy in our communion with you. And so we worship and praise and give all honor and glory to you. And we pray that as we uh, go throughout uh, our lives, throughout this week, that your word would not just ring in our ears, that your word would sink down into our hearts so that our communion with you would be felt and lasting, that our communion with you through your word would uh, truly give shape to our lives so that we would not be overwhelmed by our burdens or our sufferings or our loneliness or even our boredom. We pray that you would fill us as your word dwells in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.